0: you sit through these talks, especially scientists that will get up there and they'll just start pouring out the information. And here's a graph of this. And here's some data on this. And the audience after a while is like, it's great data, but why are you filling our heads with all this stuff? Is there a point that you're headed towards? I'm David
1: O'Ti, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. This episode is a lively conversation with scientist-turned-filmmaker Randy Olson, who is widely credited with popularizing a simple yet powerful narrative structure based on three simple words. You'll hear how Randy discovered this tool, why it is so powerful, how you can use it, and what a difference it can make in communicating about your work. Welcome to The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Ote, and I am so thrilled to have a special guest on my show today, Randy Olson, the well known scientist turned filmmaker whose work has been so influential to me in the area of science communication. Welcome, Randy Olson, and would you give us a, a brief introduction for those who
0: don't already have the pleasure of knowing a little bit about who you are and your work? Uh, Okie doke. Uh, thanks, David. Great to be here. And in a nutshell, here's my professional Life Story, which was once upon a time, I was a marine biologist, and I really loved that career, Um, did about 15, 20 years of that, and even achieved tenure as a professor of marine biology, but I developed this bigger, broader interest in mass communication and science to start with, but information in general, Uh, therefore realized to pursue that I had to get serious and leave the academic world, move to the real world, uh, which is what I did in uh, at age 38, <clears throat> the mid-90s, moved to Los Angeles, went to film school at the University of Southern California, did three years in the film program, got out of there, and then began making films for about the next 15 years, all different sorts. And then in 2009, really circled back to the science world, began to relate what I'd learned along the way um, that I felt would be relevant to scientists. And actually, the more important thing of what I learned was not so much in the film work, world, but really in the acting classes that I took in Hollywood. Those were the things that were really kind of the polar opposite of the academic world and spun my head around, made me see things from a very different perspective. And here we are now, 11 years later, um, just finishing my fifth book and now working up to my neck with science and environmental folks and more in the business world as well and a little bit in the political world. So just the stuff that I've kind of put together is applicable to kind of all walks of life.
1: It's applicable wherever someone needs to, to
0: capture someone's attention and tell their story, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Not only that, it's it's ancient and it's something that's been there all along. But we've had this cultural divide in our society between the, and especially today more than ever, all these different silos. And so Hollywood for the past century has developed this knowledge. And yet they haven't had a reason to share it with the rest of society. They've used it to make money. That's what Hollywood does. OK, So this is the knowledge that underpins how they tell stories that will make a lot of money for them. I went to film school, began to learn about it. And I entered film school with a very analytical mind coming from the science world. So I was there to have fun, number one, um, to tell stories, number two. But then third priority was to be also constantly kind of analyzing, how does this stuff work? And is there anything here I could take back to the science world? I really did enter into film school on that mission of looking for something I'd take back. And eventually I found it in what we're gonna be talking about here, which is the ABT framework.
1: Okay, okay. Now, I I had to... Uh, to bite my tongue a little bit when you said you you left the world of science and moved to Los Angeles to go into the real world. A lot of people don't consider Los Angeles
0: the real world. <laughs> <laughs> I had that pointed out to me a few years ago when I gave a talk at a science meeting, <laughs> big <laughs> keynote address, and someone in the Q&A said exactly that. Um, one of my favorite little memories was that when I was still a professor at the University of New Hampshire, I, my very first film was called Lobsters. It was a little five-minute short film. It won an award The university sent out a press release and an article was written in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, And the woman who wrote the article did a great job. And so two years later, when I decided to leave academia, I got in touch with her and she wrote a little follow up, you know, like, where are they now? And she titled it, um, Professor Leaves Academia for More Nurturing Environment, (laughs) dot, 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 Hollywood. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's been a wild and woolly ride, but certainly have learned plenty along the way. How interesting! As as we were sharing earlier,
1: I, I I have I feel I have something in common with you in having both a scientific background and a background in, in the humanities. Because my undergraduate degree was a double major in radio, TV, film, and physics, and I had these grand dreams of creating science-themed TV programming that would appeal to a broad cross section of people, and then I got out of college and started making uh, car commercials (laughs) and realized I knew nothing about how you actually create a program and get it on the air somewhere. So, as so many people do in their 20s, I went back to school and I got a master's degree in broadcasting management. By the time I had done that, I was working in engineering at a TV station. Um, This was in Austin, Texas. In fact, I helped put one TV station on the air and then went across town to the public TV station. So... I feel like so much of my career was about supporting other people telling their stories. And then through a long series of events that I need not not bore you with, I ended up running a training project around this new digital radio technology. And that sort of took me back to what's the story? Because I thought initially we needed to shove all this information down people's throats about how the technology worked and realized that was not what was going to make a successful training program. Instead, what I heard people say was, I'm afraid I'm going to show up for work one day and my job skills are going to be obsolete and I'm going to get yelled at or fired. And that's when I realized, ah, what we've got to do is tap into the story of what these people are experiencing and give them a new story, a new way of knowing that they can be successful in their jobs using this new technology. So that's, that ended up being the career changer for me and I left yeah. broadcasting after that training project was over. Great. So, what I have been finding is that as I look at trying to help scientists and engineers, people with a, an analytical bent such as I have, to tell the story of their work, I've looked at some different story models. Um, One of the simplest ones that I like a lot is the ABC model. A wants B despite C. You know, that somebody wants something, there's a striving for something, and there's an obstacle that prevents achieving that result, at least initially. And I've been using that for a while, and then I ran across your ABT model. I read, (laughs) Houston, we have a narrative, why science needs story. And I was just blown away by the simplicity and the usefulness of your model. So we teased this in my previous episode when I was talking with Michael Davis who's familiar with your work as well. And I'd like to get the the full-throated introduction of the ABT model from you now and and tell us how you came to that and what its usefulness is.
0: Sure. So <clears throat> I had um gone to film school and had at least five writing courses there, and yet never come across this ABT dynamic is what we can talk about to begin with, this idea of these three words. But the words are just the super, the surface layer. What's more fundamental is the forces they embody. And this is how we communicate all day long. And the three forces are agreement, contradiction, and consequence. And this is how we... uh, Agreement, contradiction, consequence. consequence. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat this over and over again. So this takes some digging for me to, to get to that level. But the the transitional moment for me was 2009. I published my, my first book, Don't Be Such a Scientist. And this was trying to give this critical advice back to the science world on why they do such a bad job in general of communication. And they do, and they don't like to be told that. And a lot of them hate me for the book and everything I have to say. They, you know, The irony is scientists get trained to be critical thinkers. Then when you turn that critical mind on, them. They hate you for it. Um, That's what I've been through, but (laughs) that's the way it goes. Um, And so I'd written this first book and there were four main chapters to it. So the chapters are, don't be so um, cerebral don't be so literal minded, don't be such a poor storyteller, and don't be so unlikable. And these were the four of the biggest, um, you know, suggestions I had back to the science world. The fifth chapter was much more positive. It said, be the voice of science. Now that you've soaked this in, get out there and you can really do a good job if you follow these principles. Um, The the law, after the book came out, it did really well. It, It, you know, sold plenty of copies. And I got invited to a lot of big places like CDC and NIH and NASA to, spend days doing workshops and in the beginning they said what do you want to do a workshop on and i said well i don't i've never done workshops but the longest chapter in the book was don't be such a poor storyteller so i intuitively knew this was the source of the problem i just didn't have I knew it was the problem. I didn't have the solution. And in fact, what started to happen after some nice reviews were written about the books, people started to snipe at it a little bit saying, you know, nice book, but all you did was criticize us. You know, you didn't really mm. give us the tools to fix this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I resented that for a short while. And then I slowly began to hear what they were saying and say, you know what, you're right. And I wanted to have the tool. And then it got handed to me basically in a single moment, which was uh, November 2011, I was watching Comedy Central had a documentary about the making of the animated series South Park called Six Days to Air, which you can find online and watch yourself. And buried in the middle of that is the two co-creators, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, talking about their technique. And in the in, in the middle of that, they had the scene where Matt uh, or sorry, Trey Parker is in his office and it's late Wednesday night. They, they take a week to make each episode. And he said, now we come to the point Um, where we got a first draft of the script. It's 45 pages long. And now I sit down and use what I call my rule of replacing. And what I do is I go back into the script. And every time I find the word and, I ask myself, could I replace that and with a but or therefore? Every time you replace an and with a but or therefore, the storytelling gets stronger and better and more interesting. Well, I had been through this whole film school program that cost a fortune, three years worth and five (laughs) writing courses. I had never heard it boil. The same thing you're talking about, you know, reading Houston, you're you're like the next level of what I went through, which was I sat there in shock that night. Like, well, you telling me this stuff is as simple as three words and, but therefore... Um, started next day, started calling my screenwriter friends, major screenwriters, saying, Have you ever heard of this thing? And they all said, No, but it makes sense. You know, these are the basic forces, yada, yada. Then began digging in on it and starting to put it to work and immediately, you know, presenting it in talks to scientists and they picked up on it and instantly. I go, Oh my God, you're right. It's right there. It's very simple. Then I began digging deeper and where did this come from? And a fellow named Marty Kaplan, who's a faculty member in the Annenberg School of Communications, who um, it, Sent me the script, the the text of a a speech given by Frank Danielle, who was this legendary screenwriting instructor at film school. I was lucky enough to have his script analysis course, and in 1986, in a speech, Frank Danielle laid it all right out right there, in two paragraphs. And what he says in those two iconic paragraphs: the first one says, "We always begin first drafts with the dreaded form of and then, and then, and then." And, and that's the truth. You know, when you sit mm-hmm. down to tell a story, you begin that way. Like, you know, and then we went there, then they went there, then they went there, and then they went there. And then he. the second paragraph said, it's in the revisions that we begin to replace those and thens with buts and therefores. And then he went there, but ran into this. Therefore, he did this. Uh, and then this and this happened. But then this happened. That's the actual texture of a story. And it's all boiled down to such elemental levels there. So that really I point to more and more in what I'm writing as what they call in film school, the urtext, where, where's the original starting point. That's the earliest thing I can find. 1986, that speech from Frank Danielle, who was, was legendary. And you want to know why he was so good and so legendary. Exactly. What you're talking about there at the beginning was he had an unusually analytical mind. And Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. how I think we can look at a lot of this, a spectrum from analytical to holistic And artists are way out there on the holistic side. Some of them hate to think analytically and they can create these things that can work on us in a completely different way that analytical people can't do that. And analytical people can see the structure inside of things. They can break it down to to how this stuff works. But you got to have that holistic stuff to really create the true art and beauty in the world. So there's a spectrum there. And, you know, it's not that one is better than the other. They're just the two ends of the spectrum. And so mostly storytelling over the ages has been dominated by the more holistic types. And of course, its origins going back thousands of years was in the oral tradition of telling stories. Most of these stories evolve over time, being told and retold by people who are deep in that holistic side. It was Oh, well, over the years, a f- few people came along with more analytical approaches and began to see the structure going mm-hmm. all the way back to the Greeks. They're the first ones that actually Aristotle talked about. There is structure inside of these stories. Mm-hmm. But really monumental guy was Joseph Campbell. And Why? in the last century, he's the guy who set out on this mission to look at storytelling around the world with all the different cultures and religions. And he eventually wrote it up in his book, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And at the beginning of that book, there's a quote that I always use in my workshops where he says, there are, of course, many differences in how stories are told between different religions and cultures, but this is a book about the similarities. And that's how we learn things, you know, in the science world in particular, is you look for similarities between things. That's what, you know, you start to come up with these theories based on similarities. And he did Mm -hmm. that. And what he found was there is a single template that underpins storytelling in all these different cultures. And he he labeled it the monomyth. And this is what a lot of people are now studying. There's a great video that we use a lot in the workshops um, for any of your, your folks listening in um, video from Ted Ed by a fellow named Matthew Winkler. All you got to do is search Matthew Winkler. Um, Ted Ed hero and you'll get the video and it's a four and a half minute uh, really nicely animated video <clears throat> that tells about the hero's journey and that's the, the perfect starting point for everybody and not not to watch that video once to watch it a good 30 to 40 to 50 times I'm mm, telling you I show okay. it repeatedly in the course and every time I'm watching it like oh god that's yeah Um, and he goes through this whole mono that myth structure the 12 different stages of it that's the iconic form of what a story looks like like structurally, analytically. And then Frank Danielle that I'm talking about was another person who came along with this analytical perspective. And he came up with a model for writing screenplays that he was, um, you know, really legendary guys from Czechoslovakia. He created the screenwriting program at Columbia university that eventually was recruited by the Sundance Institute and by USC. And that's where I met him the year before he died. I was lucky enough to take his course but he had this ability to see this structure and he came up with a a structure for writing screenplays. that's called the sequence paradigm, you know, sounds like science speak basically. And that's widely used. That's widely used for screenwriters and it's breaking down the story in a screenplay into eight sequences basically um, that all come together. So it's these analytical minds that have seen this structure and then the ABT ends up being the ultimate core of the structure. So the South park guys mentioned it 2011 I gave a TED Med talk on it in 2013. I wrote the Houston book in 2015. All the while, formulating this more and more, figuring out. And in the beginning, several of my colleagues and I we looked at it and just said, it, "It can't be this simple as three words." Well, it is. You know, it's, it's now a decade later of working with this thing. It is absolutely this simple at the start. And yet it radiates into infinite complexity. And that's very the the analogy is fractal structure. That's the same thing with a fractal, which is mm, like an uh-huh. ice crystal is used as a standard yeah. example of a fractal. At this at the smallest scale, an ice crystal is really simple. There's one little set, you know, a molecule, but then it's radiated up and out of out of simplicity comes incredible complexity. It's the same deal with storytelling out of this simple little three-part structure of agreement, contradiction, and consequence. Again, those are the forces under the three words. Those glue together to all the the scaling up. And so one of the things I like to talk about is that... like take a look at any good tv series you'll see the abt structure at work there the example i use is uh, breaking bad you know one of the greatest exercises in in storytelling in the history of tv and that ran five seasons the whole show had an abt structure to it the, the story of it was an abt structure um, And then every season had ABTs and every character had their ABTs and every episode has their ABTs all the way down to every scene has got ABT dynamic to it. So for example, you could have a scene where Walt comes home and his wife Skylar's cooking dinner. uh, But then she says, Walt, why do you have two cell phones? And therefore he gets angry and storms out. You know, you see it all the way down at that scale, this, and, but therefore structure. And that's just the, that's the essence of everything. The essence of everything. Wow. Okay.
1: <laughs> now, a, a, a real quick question before we go into a break. Um, when you we were talking about the monomyth, is that the same thing that is sometimes referred to as the hero's journey?
0: Yeah, it, it is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the mm-hmm. monomyth is a more analytical term for it, but it's the hero's journey. Exactly. And, and in fact, for any of your listeners that have a deeper interest in this stuff, the the starting point is that Winkler video that's so great. and, you know, it's really kind of hard to read Joseph Campbell's book and those sorts of things. But the the book that really does the great presentation of it is called The Writer's Journey. Mm-hmm. And that was written by mm-hmm. Christopher Vogler. And the story on that was he was working at Disney and he wrote an internal memo explaining to everybody the reason Star Wars exploded around the planet and everybody in all cultures could relate to it was because George Lucas studied Joseph Campbell and used those monomyth principles the hero's journey mm-hmm. as the underpinnings of Star Wars yep. and there you have it there's the the whole you know it's kind of a formula um so Christopher Vogler's book is enormously popular and, and one of the most important books in all of Hollywood today and he breaks it all down and it's the writer's journey is sort of a paraphrase of the hero's journey.
1: Ah, okay. I get that. All right. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, um, I'd love to go a little deeper into just the, the mechanics, the and, but, therefore, what that replaces, yes. how it takes something from being too simple to just complex enough, what happens when you try to make things too complex, and how someone can easily use this to take a completely different approach to science communication than they typically do in a in scientific writing. So, I'll plant that seed. We'll come back in just a moment. This is David Ody on The Power of Story in Science and my guest today is Randy Olson. We'll be right back. You are a knowledgeable expert and you want your expertise to make a difference to your audience. But you can't see them and gauge their reactions Therefore, you need new tools for engaging that unseen audience. Hi, I'm David Ode, offering you a way to pick up those tools. In my new self-paced online course, you will discover three ways to improve your story. One fascinating tool for hooking your audience's attention and eight details in your physical environment that will set you apart from other virtual presenters. Today's technical presentations are going virtual. And that means you can reach a wider audience as long as you understand how to serve that audience. So join me for the online course, Own the Virtual Stage. Confidently connect with an unseen audience. Just go to ownthevirtualstage.com for details. And we're back. I'm David Ody. This is The Power of Story and Science, and I'm having a delightful conversation with Randy Olson, author of a number of books, including one that's been hugely influential to me, Houston, We Have a Narrative, Why Science Needs Story. Now, on a program that's called The Power of Story and Science, you would assume that those are both interests of mine. So uh, l- let's start with What is a story? And then maybe move into why is that needed in science communication?
0: That's the most important question to start with. And uh, nine years ago, I began putting together a workshop and I recruited two actor friends of mine uh, from Hollywood, one of whom Brian Palermo is a veteran improv actor. And he began hitting me with that question because what happened was I was talking about narrative and story and a narrative, blah, blah, blah. And he began saying, well, what's, what's the difference between narrative and story? And I had said, oh, you know, don't bug me. You know, everybody knows the <laughs> answer to that. But the truth is I didn't know the answer. And he pushed and pushed on. Finally, one day I'd sat down and started looking into it. And actually I then presented it to a really senior communications professor who said to me, Oh, you can't separate the two. You know, a narrative is a story and a story is a narrative, yada, yada. And that's what you get in this holistic world of the humanities Mm -hmm. is the tendency to not even want to think that analytically, Mm -hmm. but there is an analytical divide. You can see it right there in the monomyth. And I, in the Houston book, boiled it down to the simple answer of, um, defining the word narrative to begin with narrative is the series of events that occur in the search for the solution to a problem. Okay. so you see that in the monomyth what the monomyth shows you is the first off it says that a story is a circular journey it begins one place and comes back to the same place you go in a circle um it goes through three phases the first phase is the setup phase where nothing's going on think of a murder mystery you go to a town you get to know everybody then the narrative phase begins when we encounter a problem so you find a dead body now you have a problem who did it or you, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, you know, mm-hmm. starts off in this boring world, then gets transported to Oz, and now she has a problem how to get home to how Kansas. To home to Every great right. story has got that basic structure mm-hmm. that the hero's now placed in the situation of a problem where they now have to en- embark in this journey to try and solve it. And that's the same as science, by the way, you know. It is, you isn't pose it? You the problem, exactly, and then you embark on a journey, <clears throat> you begin to do experiments. You know, right. is it this, is it that, is it this? All your hypotheses, same thing as a, a murder mystery. You're you're trying to solve and the mystery, right? Trying to solve the mystery. Eventually you do solve it. And then you go back to the third phase, which is back to that calm world that uh, Joseph Campbell called the ordinary world. And the ordinary world is basically the world where there's no problem going on. Your mind is at a, it ease and everything's great. As mm-hmm. soon as there's a problem identified, you enter into what he called the special world where your brain is excited. You're all focused on that. You can't sleep at night. Cause I've got this problem. I got to solve, you know, this hypothesis, whatever. Um, so it's that fundamental divide. And then that tracks back to what is a story and, the story is the bigger, the whole, the whole circular journey. The narrative part is that special world part. It's the series of events occurring in the search for the solution to a problem. But a story involves the other part as well, the setup, which is mm-hmm. all the stuff before we run into the problem. And then the resolution at the end of what it all means when once we've solved the problem, what did this teach us in life and those sorts of things. So story is 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 larger than narrative thing. That's it. Story is the big thing and narrative is the narrative is that events. the series of events and and most importantly the problem solution dynamic and so mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. about so then we can start to talk about in society we've got these different narratives we've got the immigration narrative we've got the civil rights narrative we've got the gun control narrative we've got the abortion narrative all these social issues all of those are journeys in which we're searching for the solution that is eventually going to make everybody happy. You know, that we can finally Mm -hmm. have a Mm -hmm. set of rules that we're all uh, at peace with and we're not there for so many of them. The civil rights issue, that's what their whole narrative, the I have a dream speech. That's exactly what that's about. Mm -hmm. The first paragraph, the first substantive paragraph uh, after the greeting of the, I have a dream speech from Martin Luther King in 1963, one of the greatest speeches in the history of this country in the top five, of most everybody's list. The, the, First lengthy paragraph is perfect ABT structure. He says, basically, we were made a promise 100 years ago Mm -hmm. by Lincoln, um, and we made progress on that problem, but we're still... It hasn't, the debt has not been paid. The check hasn't been cashed. The check hasn't been cashed, right? Right, exactly. And the last line of that paragraph um, begins with the word so, which is the same as therefore. He says, so we are gathered here today on the mall to continue this struggle. So there's perfect ABT structure right there. Um, And then by the way, while we're on the subject, one of the other greatest iconic uses of the ABT structure is the Gettysburg Address. And that speech is nothing more than a three paragraph ABT. When you look at it, The first paragraph says, we are a great and mighty nation. The second paragraph says, but we're engaged in this horrible civil war. The third paragraph says, therefore, it's up to us, the living, to make sure these souls were not lost in vain. We've got to do these things. So it's this basic thinking, the structure, which is how the brain is programmed. And it's as simple as setup, problem, solution, and, but, therefore, agreement, contradiction, and consequence. Now, the real mission that I'm on nowadays, just to explain what I do for a living, is Mm -hmm. my new book. Um, the narrative gym, which has arisen this year out of the course that I've done on the ABT framework. And what this is about is this analogy that the narrative part of your brain is like a muscle. And this narrative stuff is, is it, it's, it's easy to pick up and therefore in the first moment, think, oh, I got the three words, I'm all set. But actually it's a lifetime of struggle getting really good at narrative. And you need to approach it with this mentality of thinking about the narrative part of your brain being like a muscle. That needs to be conditioned, practice, worked out, and why in the world all these academics, for example, think that they can do no practice year all year long and then get up and give a talk and have it you know be wonderful? Right. Um, there's no professional athletes that think that way. They all practice day in and day out. There's no performers. There's no you know actors. They're yep. always conditioning themselves. Every actor I've gotten to know that was a good actor in Hollywood. When they're not on TV shows, they're doing plays and things like that. They're filling their time or they're taking courses. They mm-hmm. know that if you leave this muscle alone, it atrophies and you're no good. So why in the world don't these academics think that way? They don't. They've never had anybody, you know, scold them about that. And they give horrible talks that are completely non-narrative, which then gets back to that that uh, the term narrative. So there is narrative and non-narrative. Narrative is that ABT structure. Non-narrative is what Frank Danielle had talked about in that first paragraph, which is we always start. That's what he was saying basically. We always and, start and, and the end, right. and and thing. That's non-narrative. You know, like, well, what what's the problem? We're working, where are we going on this journey? And you sit through these talks, especially scientists that will get up there and they'll just start pouring out the information. And here's a graph of this, and here's some data on this. And the audience after a while is like it's great data, but why are you filling our heads with all this stuff? Is there a point that you're headed towards?
1: That's exactly. where the butt comes in. Exactly, right. Yeah, yeah because the, the basic structure of most scientific presentations is the same as most scientific papers. We saw this observation and this observation, and we wondered about this, and we tried this apparatus and this procedure, and here's our result. And there's no mm-hmm. no narrative to that.
0: Well, and and to that very point, you know, the 100 years ago, scientists communicated so much better than today, and they don't like being told that. They've gone backwards for communication in, in an enormous way. You know, communication is terrible today compared to what it was 100 years ago, because 100 years ago, people had the time, the brain space, and incubated these things and found the ABT structure before they got up and started talking about them. And the result of that was, um, in the beginning with the communication of science, in the 1600s, the first journals were written, and they were and, and, and journals. They were the London Philosophical Society's proceedings, things like that. They would just be disgorgement of, and, you know, somebody saw this, and somebody measured this, and somebody got this. Well, over time, there began to be this basically selective pressure, which is people couldn't read that stuff and, like, you know, get to the point. And so by the 1800s, scientific papers began to take a form, which was the first part would be about a theory. The second part would be about an experiment that was done. The third part would be uh, putting it into the context, the discussion. Mm -hmm. Finally, by a century ago, um, the science world came together and created this template that you see in all scientific papers today, almost all of them. It's called the IMRAD template. Um, IMRAD stands for Introduction, Methods, Results, and Discussion. It's the four-part structure, and that's pure ABT. So when you write a scientific paper, you're implementing this ABT dynamic. What you do in the introduction is ABT structured, which is you review all this literature, you know, and there was a study on this 80 years ago. And another study shows this, and, 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 and we now know a lot about this topic. But the one thing nobody's ever really examined is this. Therefore, Mm -hmm. here's what we did. Then you go into your methods, then you go into your results, then you come back then you go to discussion and you really get back into the ABT stuff, you know, and you use the ABT to synthesize what we now know.
1: So if, if ABT underlies the, the, the basic format of the, of the MRAD structure for a scientific paper, yeah. why are so many scientific presentations so bad? <laughs>
0: um, because of a preoccupation with information and a belief that the facts speak for themselves, and that the willingness to tolerate tangents, and because the people involved are heavily cerebral. So, you know, we've got this vertical axis that some people are massively informational, and then, you know, there's non-academics that are just really visceral, and they don't really have that ability. People that are really informational They can take your and, and, and thing and they can put it together into their own understanding, but mostly they already know what the problems are you're working on. You know, they know why this is important, why we need to do it. And so they're what we call the inner group. Um, And this is why it's so great to give a talk to everybody that works in your laboratory, because when you work with the inner group, you don't need any of this narrative stuff they mm-hmm. they're already there with you and mm-hmm. that's why it's so fun that's why everybody likes to hang out with their friends and their family and all that sort of stuff you don't have to waste any time putting things into context explaining stuff that's it's like the old show cheers you want to go where everybody knows your <laughs> name <and> walk, <laughs> yeah they're all interested in the what context you did
1: already yeah
0: that's it yeah you don't have to waste any time on context you just get right into the stuff and you can describe what th- happened in terms of the real world, exactly what did happen. Cause most of the real world is and, 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 you know, that's the problem. You know, most, most people's lives aren't that interesting. Mm-hmm. And you see this all the time. I mean, when you try and write a book about somebody's life, you have to restructure it to cut out all the boring stuff they did in their life. Nobody wants to hear about their day-to-day routine. We want to hear the high points and the low points of what they went through. So the real world is and, and, and the narrative world is ABT, the problem that we had this is that we have this is the fundamental challenge of science communication is that our brains are not programmed and 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 our brains are programmed abt and so mm. you have to take that and 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 stuff and then Molded into the abt thing and then scientists say scientists say back to me well i that's lying i don't want to engage in that well i'm sorry but a hundred years ago they already <laughs> decided for you with this mrad template that's what the mrad is it's a set of rules that says to you you're not allowed to present the and 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 thing you're going to bore you're going to ruin the whole profession of science if you start doing talks they're all and 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 you've got to comply with this There was a famous essay written by P.B. Medawar, Nobel laureate from the UK, died in the early 60s. And the title of his essay was, Is the Scientific Paper a Fraud? And he basically took this to his grave, his distress over the fact that you have to engage in this highly subjective process when you write a scientific paper. You may have done 23 experiments, but they're not going to let you publish all of them. You've got to pick the three that you think were important. And mm-hmm. I have been at scientific talks where somebody in the Q&A said, did you measure this one thing? And the, per- the scientist says, oh, of course. And the whole audience says, why didn't you present that to us? your whole thing would be different if you told us, you know, the data on that one thing. I've seen that happen, you know, Mm -hmm. and basically the scientists didn't know that that was that important. This is why in shaping this stuff, you've got to work with a group of people. You've got to have the whole training program we've done the last five years that I outlined at the end of the Houston book is story circles, where you pull together a group of five people and one person presents their ABT and the other four are trained in these questions to ask to help shape it and strengthen it because you end up with so many blind spots, you know, and shape. Shaping narrative when you're making these subjective decisions. Well, I'm just not going to tell the audience I measured this, and then next thing you know, like, well, you That's should have told us the one thing they wanted to know, right? Yes. Wow.
1: <laughs> okay. Gosh, we're. G- I. I feel like I could just keep talking to you forever, but we're going to need to wrap this up. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And uh, I guess what I would like to do is to say, is there uh, one? Here's the most important thing I can tell you right you now, given which us is yet.
0: okay. Here is the Houston, we have a narrative book. And this is the most important thing about the new book is notice the thickness side (laughs) by side. (laughs) (laughs) The new book is teeny tiny and you can blow through it in probably an hour. There's only really 75 pages of content um, intentionally written to be... It's much shorter and concise because after this long journey, I finally know what I wanted to say. Um, the Houston thing has got a lot of stuff in there and it's great for academics and things like that. It was an academic book published by university of Chicago press. This new book is for everybody and it's so short and light and breezy. So that's what I would encourage everybody. And furthermore, it's only five bucks, you know, what do you you got to lose? As our president likes to say, what do you got to lose? Um, so yeah, it's just the super, it's the book that you want sitting on your desk to help you shape the narrative And I think the last thing I will tell you is that everybody should be doing this ABT exercise and don't let anybody tell you, Oh, I need a day or two. This is what happens all the time. I say to people, they say, well, you know, help me on my project. And I say, all right, right now, tell me off the top of your head, what's the ABT of, you know, your project. Um, and you know, Matter of fact, let's do this right now. Let me put you in the hot hot seat. Tell me the ABT of of this podcast.
1: The ABT of this podcast. Scientists need to communicate their work and they've got opportunities to do that, but they rarely use those opportunities to their advantage because they're so caught up in a wrong way. Therefore, they need to think about communicating science differently.
0: All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we did not rehearse that. I ha- He had no forewarning of that. That was awesome. Yeah, that was great. See, y- you did that off the top of your head. That's f- far better than most people do. But what you get with a lot of people is they they first to say, you know, no, I need a day or two to think. And then you say, no, right now you can do this. And they go, okay. And then you see their eyeballs roll back in their head as they're activating the narrative part of their brain. And then you say, just give me a couple things for your and to set it up. Not too much. Yeah. Then get to the butt. Tell me what that is. Therefore, and people can do it. I do it with students all the time. And, you know, once somebody does it, then they go, oh, wow, that actually was pretty easy. Yeah. Everybody needs to do that. Everybody needs to do that. So if you're working on a
1: scientific report and you can just start out with some observations, say, we know this is true and this is true, but we also found this to be true. Therefore, here's what we need to investigate
0: further Then. You're yeah, yeah, and, and keep in mind the butt is the statement of the problem, so it's strongest because here's the deal: is that we're all driven by the problem solution dynamic, mm-hmm. and you know imagine you're at the hardware store looking for something and over the counter is a guy saying, you know, I'm having a problem, you know, realigning my gutters on my house. And you just did that, you know, last year, you can't help yourself when you hear that. Like I want to help that person solve their problem. Problems draw everybody in. And that's the way you want to communicate the work that you've been doing is share your problem with everybody before you tell them how you solved it. And the best thing you can do is share it in a way that their minds are now active. Well, how would I do that? And almost, you know, with the tone of, can anybody help me solve this thing? Because I'm going to tell you in a minute how I did it, but maybe you've got some better ideas. That's when brains get most activated. It's it's all about the problem-solution dynamic. That's what the ABT is.
1: And that's what you want to do is activate your listeners' brains when you're giving a, a presentation ideally. Wow. I, I feel like mine's <laughs> highly activated right now because of this conversation. <laughs> wow. That's great. I'm going to have to draw this to a close. So uh, your, your newest book is the narrative, gym. and yes. it, is it's your skinniest one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That makes <laughs> me feel a lot better because, uh, I, I just sent my third book off to my editor and all my books are about that skinny. So that's, I'm that's like good. good I mean, I
0: hate to say it. Well, you know, the very first little, uh, preface thing I talk about is TLDR, do you know what that mm-hmm. stands for? Yes. Uh, what does
1: TLDR stand for? Uh, wait, TLDR. No, I'm thinking of something else.
0: Yeah, so most Sorry. people don't know about that, but it's a it's a little acronym that's used on groups like Reddit, uh, you know, in the comment section. What happens is somebody will write a whole long rant, and the next person's comment will just be TLDR stands for too long didn't read. Too long didn't um, read. Okay, okay. <laughs> and that's the problem, you know, and so I've seen it, but didn't as, know what it meant. Okay. Yeah, much as I love the Houston book, it's pretty long and pretty dense. It's a TLDR thing. I don't blame people if they, you know, bought it and never read it, but the new one, that's the first thing I say is I hope that this is not a TLDR book. You know, I hope people end up saying, uh, just right. Totally read it. <laughs> that's great. Where can people find this book? Amazon. Amazon. Okay. Yeah. All right. Where can people find out more about you and your workshops? um and by the way also we're I, in the next few days i think the audio book version of it is going to go up as well and that you know is also very listenable um i don't know you know the in terms of the workshop stuff we're, we're kind of booked up for a while so that's that's a little tough but the books i think for for starters the best entry point and this book is so simple and practical okay uh, just grab it and, and set to work so
1: that's where it people it. need to go the narrative yeah. gym Yes, I will go get my workout at the Narrative Gym. I can't wait to get that and, <laughs> uh, and get through it. <laughs> this has been such a fascinating conversation, Randy. Thank you for being uh, part Bad of my job. program.
0: Yeah, no, no. Great. And thank you for having an ABT to share with me right off the top of your head. You could have made me look really bad if you'd locked up and like, ah, I can't do it. So, yeah. <laughs> we would have both looked bad if that had happened after I said I was such a fan
1: of it. Great. Wow. This has been the power of story and science. Yes. And I believe you picked up some uh, some insights into the power of story and communicating science today. So if that's if that's true for you, then mission accomplished. If you'd like to follow up with me, if you'd like to offer any feedback on this program or suggest future guests, the simplest way to get hold of me would be to follow up by going to storyandscience.com. That's storyandscience.com. I'm David Ody. Thanks for your attention. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Ode. Thanks for listening.